if you would turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the book of Revelation at the end, uh, chapter 2. As uh, Pastor Matt and Pastor Kurt uh, asked me to preach this morning, um, I have the unique challenge, I would call it, of figuring out what you're going to preach from. You're not in Matt's situation, preaching through the book of Isaiah. Uh, on, you, know, you sort of know what the next passage is going to be. You can decide something topical. You could pick a topic of the day. Today's National Mulligan Day. I could make some terrible analogy with you know, the gospel and you know, forgiveness along that line. It would probably be rather inaccurate. But I, instead, uh, we're looking at Revelation chapter 2 because uh, I'm going to take the advantage of going to the shortest letters of the New Testament. Not 3 John, uh, but the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. So I get to preached through an entire epistle, if you want to call it that, uh, here this morning. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these words of Christ uh, to this assembly of believers in the city of Ephesus, Lord, we would ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, use your spirit uh, to bring new life to the faculty of our bodies, and that we would understand the good news of the gospel praise our Lord and Savior, and that we would be the instruments of bringing about the glory of his kingdom in this life and in the life to come. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Revelation 2 here, these letters begin, there's a series of seven, it begins with a letter to the church in Ephesus. It's actually probably the best place in many ways that this book could start. Sort of the obvious place to start as well. Ephesus was the the crown jewel of this part of the the Greek-speaking world. It's a massive city by its standards of that day and age. A huge trading port sitting on the, the hillside above the city, looking down on the town On one side, you would find streets teeming and bustling with people coming from the countryside to the ports. Aqueducts bringing in fresh, clean water. Public toilets and public plumbing, technological advances of their day. On your other side, you'd find pagan worshipers and priests heading up to the road to the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a huge, gleaming, painted marble temple that still today makes people stand in awe of its ruins. Before you would be the bustling ports with ships carrying goods from across the Roman Empire, the known world and beyond. As the sun sets over the glistening waters of the Mediterranean and you look down at the ginormous architectural marvel of the theater where Paul himself had been shouted down decades before. But Ephesus isn't just a marvel and an importance in terms of the economy of the Greek portion of the Roman world. It's also probably the best place to start in terms of the church, as we've already referenced Paul. It's here in Ephesus that Paul spends the longest chunk of his missionary journeys. He settles down here in Ephesus and ministers to this congregation 
for two whole years. It's here that Priscilla and Aquila instructed Apollos in the ways of Christ. And the word tells us that Apollos preached boldly to these Ephesian believers. It's likely that some of those tents in the marketplace before us are the very product of Priscilla and Aquila's workshop. That some of those ships are carrying dyed cloth from Lydia and Philippi, and perhaps some of those tents and goods are even some that the Apostle Paul had helped make by his own hands. It's here in Ephesus that Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, seeking to instruct and care for the congregation across the sea. It's here in Ephesus, on Paul's way to Jerusalem, aware that he's going there to be sent into captivity and will probably never return to this portion of the world. It's Ephesus that Paul makes sure that he goes out of his way to visit and calls on the elders to meet with him that he could instruct them. It's during that captivity to come in Judea and Rome that Paul writes the book of Ephesians, one of the great letters of the New Testament. It's from Ephesus then that the gospel goes forth into all of this region, into Laodicea and Colossae and Galatia, it's to Ephesus that Paul sends his most trusted disciple, Timothy, as we read in 1 Timothy, to guide and direct this church. I'll just pause there for a moment. We've got Priscilla, Aquila, Paulus, Paul, Timothy, but it goes on. Church history argues that Ephesus is where Onesimus, the one who had become a believer and assisted Paul in his fleeing, who's returned to his slave master Philemon, that it's Ephesus where Onesimus eventually comes and settles and ministers there. And some scholars would even argue that it's here in Ephesus that Onesimus first gathers together all of the known letters of Paul and binds them in what would basically become the first editions of the New Testament. It's Ephesus where the Apostle John ministers after he leaves Judea. It's here in Ephesus where John writes the Gospel of John and the letters of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Roman Catholic history would argue that it's at Ephesus that John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, entrusted to his personal care by Christ himself at the foot of the cross. And it's here in Ephesus that she lived out her last days. And of course, it's off the coast of Ephesus, on the island of Patmos, that John pens the book of the Revelation and is first delivered to this church. If you're going to begin a series of letters to this part of the world, Ephesus is the place and most fitting area to start. And not only that, but we're in luck. As confusing as the book of Revelation may be, these letters are often rather straightforward. 
without the burdens of dragons, bowls, seals, scrolls, even with a cheat sheet. Chapter 1, verse 20 already tells us what the most mysterious illusions are going to be. We know, as it says here, that the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You've got the back of the the textbook answers as to what's going to come up in terms of the illusions. And so this letter begins as well to this congregation that's been blessed time and time and time again for two generations with basically the who's who of the New Testament coming and pouring their life in the gospel into these people. It begins with wonderful words of commendation from Christ himself. Words that any believer, any group of elders or officers would yearn to hear from the voice of Christ. It tells us that this church should be commended for their patient endurance. That they cannot bear with those who are evil that they've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false, that they're enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of Christ, and that they've not grown weary, that they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which Christ himself also hates. Take that on its surface, and this is a commendation of a congregation that has remained faithful in the face of opposition that would have dragged Paul and shouted him down in the theater that has one of the biggest temples of the world right next door in their backyard. But these commendations in the context of everything that I've already alluded to is even more tremendous. Because when Paul comes to those elders, when he writes to Timothy, when John writes to this group as well, This commendation of Christ on their patient endurance, on their testing, on their bearing up for the sake of Christ, is all the more amazing because it comes as a fulfillment of warnings delivered directly to them. Acts 20, when Paul meets with those elders from Ephesus, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert." And Christ says that they've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. When Paul then writes in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5, he reminds them, let no no one deceive you with empty words. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In 1 Timothy 1 He tells Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 2, writes, So now many antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had not been of us. 
For had they not been of us, they would have continued with us. In chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is a church that time and time and time again has been warned and charged about remaining faithful and true to the doctrine of the faith once handed down from the apostles to them. And they are now hearing the very words of Christ to them saying, well done, my faithful servants. That should be words for this group and anyone who can agree with these words that would move us to rejoicing to see and hear the warnings of the Gospels, the warnings of the New Testament, and find that we have been found faithful in the judgment of the Lord. But that's not all that we have in here. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you have at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If this you have, You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Usually, in the context of the New Testament, when you come to the word but, it's one of the great transitions. It tends to shift from the proclamation of the law and our sin to the hope and the joy of the gospel. But the but here and begins verse 4 is one that should devastate our hearts. It's one that a congregation that's thinking back on all of those instructions from Paul directly to the elders and his letter to the church, to Timothy from the apostle John, to hear those glowing words of Christ of how they have remained steadfast in the truth and the purity of their doctrine, and yet they have abandoned the love they had at first. Faithfulness to principles, truth and doctrine, but no love. a fatal flaw that they should know well enough. Because 1 Corinthians was written in their city 
words that Paul penned in their town, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Let us not forget. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, and if I have all faith, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here is a pillar of truth and the biggest cultural and economic and religious center of its world, standing firm to the professed beliefs of the New Testament. And yet it stands in danger of Jesus himself removing them as a witness to the good news of the love of Christ for sinners. Please let that sink in. This is a group of men and women and families that has every truth correct, that has a zeal for faithfully handing down the word of truth from one generation to another. And yet Jesus warns them he may remove them from the scene. That is a warning that also shouldn't find us being taken off guard. Christ himself in the Gospel of Matthew declared that there are some who would come to him at the end and declare, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And in the case of the Ephesians, and test false doctrine and false apostles and expose them for being what they are not. And the Lord will declare to them, I never knew you. This is a warning for them and for us. False faith can have all the right doctrine, all the right deeds, and yet, if it lacks love for Christ, it will fail in the last judgment. It exposes, then, that that trust of that faith is not in the person and the work of Jesus but some other thing, an institution, a confession, a belief that being right is what we need. And as Kurt reminded us in the congregational prayer, is it not love that stands at the heart of the greatest commandments? What are those commandments? Love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The very thing that Christ declares, he who loves me will keep my commandments. And his very last commandment in the Gospel of Matthew was make disciples of all people, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And that love of the Lord is another theme that shouldn't be unfamiliar to this group that has received so much rich instruction from the New Testament. John has reminded them, we love because Christ loved us first. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells them and reminds them, walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He instructs Timothy to teach them that the aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere, true faith. In chapter 3, Paul prays for Timothy and this church in Ephesus so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a terrible blow for this church. It's set up with a moment of joy, and here, over time, somehow, even in the midst in the ministry of the Apostle John, an evil has arisen that's twisting the good commands about testing the truth claims of the world around us and especially in the context of what is taught as truth in the church. The focus for the Ephesians seems to have shifted to protecting their tribe, their identity, their reputation, and the purity of their teaching. Things on their own which are good and wonderful and commendable by the standards of Scripture and Christ's own word but terrible when they become the source and the focus of their trust, of their assurance, of their identity. Who Jesus is and what he has done for these people in Ephesus has slipped out of focus. Their neighbor worshiping the idols of Artemis of the Ephesians down the road of making those silver statues in the marketplace where they shop for their clothing and food. Those neighbors have become their enemy. A hostile pagan tribe bent on persecuting these people. A people instead that should be someone to be loved as an image bearer of the Creator God, whom we're called to share the gospel with. And the effect that they have turned their focus of their identity away from a love of Christ and who He is and what He has done for them means that making disciples of the world there, of that great commission, has stopped to be a regular part of their lives. Now, let's be honest. It's pretty obvious. We know when people love and like something. They can't stop talking about it. Be it college football, the Broncos and the NFL, whatever the, the latest TV show is that they're binging that they think you should watch too, the newest gadget that they've just bought. We know what people's loves are. They don't hide it. They put it on a baseball hat, on a t-shirt, on a bumper sticker on the back, and they want to talk to it about us. That means that a true love for Christ seeks 
to win disciples to him as well. It asks, it begs the question of these Ephesians who seem to be bent on preserving the truths of the gospel for generations down to us. Let us not forget that. This is a group that is preserving 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Ephesians, the book of Revelation, that we could have the privilege of reading it this morning. But have they forgotten the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel? Have they forgotten at the end of the day what is actually good about the news and the truth that they are seeking to preserve for those who would come after them? Have they forgotten that greater love is no man than this, that he would lay down his life for another? That God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that we will, while we were still those pagans marching off to that great temple, self-sworn enemies of God, that Christ died for us. That God loved the world by giving his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. Have they forgotten that the good news exists because they live in a world that knows only bad news? Flip on the cable, nightly news, and that's what you're going to get until you get to the weather. It's the bad news of what's happening in your backyard, in your country, and around the world. The good news exists because the world knows it's in a terrible state. John's reminded these Ephesians in 1 John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is the Lord, a liar, and his word is not in us. But the world itself knows this. As much as it wants to look on newborn babies as pure and innocent, as much as it wants to argue for the the inherent goodness of humanity, the world testifies that it's broken, ashamed, guilty, universally. It's the challenge of the faiths that are professed by 95 plus percent of the world. It's what people are looking to hide on Facebook and Twitter. It's everything that we go about our cultural life to work through. Because we also recognize that the world doesn't have a good answer. Its best job is to to pass the buck onto somebody else. Well, hey, you Christians can't give me a good answer about the problem of evil. Well, yeah, but let's remember, you're asking me that question because you have no clue. We try and figure out our our standing before God by saying, hey, I'm better than that next person. It's a wonderful idea. Let me build a tower of Babel to heaven on the corpses of other people. As long as I can say that they're worse than me, I can gain entrance. Or maybe, as we probably try to do more often than not, let's just stick our head in the sand and ignore the evil in the hearts of men and women around us. But it's because that sin exists in the world that that assurance of pardon, 1 John 1, 9, is actually so sweet and so good. 
that when we say that we have sinned and we recognize the truth of his word and his love for us, then we can find joy in knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Because Christ has hung crucified on the cross in my place to take upon himself the justice of the Lord. A blessing that's actually even far beyond forgiveness and a heart that's cleansed. A reward and an inheritance that in Ephesians 1 Paul described as the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. We're not a world that thinks of lavish things all that much. We live in a world in a culture of athleisure. We don't live in a world that tries to make the Broadmoor our bedroom and our living room. To gild things with gold and rubies. But what we have in the gospel, in the love of Christ poured out for us on the cross is all of the riches and the fullness of him who created the world handed to us, even though we don't deserve it. It's in Christ that we overcome the penalty and the wrath against sin. It's in Christ that we're more than conquerors. It's in Jesus, not in holding to the purity and the truth of the doctrine once handed down, but to the one who conquers, we only conquer in Christ, but in him being united to Christ in love. One day, it's not going to be this broken world. One day, it's not going to be a world defined by its imperfections. But we will come to a world perfected and made new. One day, we won't be walking out of the garden into a wilderness of chaos, but we will stand with the Lord at the tree of life and taste its fruit for all eternity. One day, we will come to dwell in the paradise the royal palace garden of the Lord, where fear and tears and shame and guilt, want and loneliness, even death, will be no more. We should be praying as the Lord commands this church in Ephesus. To pray like as in the prophet Isaiah for the Lord to open our ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Words for this group 2,000 years ago and 2,000 miles away, but words just as much for us today. Let's pray and reflect and ask, do I test every spirit and what I'm taught? from the pulpit, on Christian radio, on Facebook? How is my love for the Lord? Is it all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
How is my love for my neighbor, for making disciples across the streets and in my community? Let us hear these words loud and clearly. Let us examine our own selves, our own congregation, and let us ensure that we do not lose the love we had for Christ at first. Drowning in the words of a pagan culture or in the swamp of busyness, materialism, and virtue signaling of the American evangelical church. But fear not, perhaps if we have lost it, then let us repent and return. And as we meet together here this morning in Sunday school, community groups and Bible studies and prayer groups and in discipleship one-on-one, let us encourage one another towards love and good deeds. Because saving faith is truth in love a gospel reality of overflowing to the praise of the Lord and a proclamation of the good news to our neighbor. A golden lampstand that's not a lavish decoration for our entry areas and living rooms, but a golden lampstand in use, shining forth the glory and the good news of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we long to be commended as these folks in Ephesus of remaining true, of holding fast to your word. But Lord, we fear for the gaze of the Lord to look upon us and to see where we have fallen short. Father, we ask that you would move us to heed these words and to recognize that our faithful endurance and perseverance comes through you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who upholds us and preserves us through all trials. Lord, we would ask that we would be those who would present to the world a hope that lies within, a witness to the truth and the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whom we pray. Amen.